Turn your Bibles, if you would, to 1 Corinthians 11. We're going to take a little detour this week and next week from Matthew, um, which actually that detour will be continued into the new year because we'll pick up with Advent starting in December. Um, But because of the power outage, we not only had to skip church, but we had to reschedule communion. And so because we have both our Thanksgiving potluck and communion today, I wanted to talk about 1 Corinthians 11. And I'll come back to this later, but one of the reasons for doing this is that one of the common practices in the early church, and we don't know how common it was, but it was common enough that we know about it, was that often communion was taken as a part of a larger meal. And so in one sense, it's sort of historically fitting that we have our potluck on the same day as communion. But before we get to that, we'll come back to that. Don't worry, I'll come back to the eating part. Um, But I want to talk about something else just to sort of get our minds in the right place to understand our text, a different form of eating. About 10 to 15 years ago, very smart people started telling pastors and other leaders, listen, if you have difficult conversations, you should do it over a meal. And so we were all like, okay, so if you got to talk to someone about bad behavior, take them out to lunch. If you got to talk about conflict in the church, take them out to lunch. That'll ease everybody. They'll be a little less defensive, and you'll be able to have a better, more constructive conversation. And sometimes it really did work. And you were able to see that sharing a meal together allowed the defenses to go down and for you to have a nice, constructive, yet difficult conversation. But then something else happened. What happened was that asking someone to lunch turned into a sign that they did something wrong and you were going to confront them about it. And so instead of lowering the defenses, if they were to ask someone to lunch, it would raise your defenses, and you'd be like, okay, what are you going to say to me now? What was supposed to be helpful became really unhelpful. What was meant to help a conversation started to hinder conversation because of how it was used. And it's that pattern that's going to help us understand our text today. What was meant for one thing was actually causing another thing. What was meant to be positive became something very negative. What was meant to bring unity became something that meant to be, that became divisive. We're going to look today at some familiar words because we use them as a part of our communion service. But the larger context is that the communion service and the meal around the communion service, instead of bringing people together around their shared faith in Jesus, was actually causing divisions and conflict in the church. And so let's look at this warning passage 
from Corinthians, a warning of what not to do. But in doing that, we're going to see how communion and fellowship meals, how they should act and how they should bring us together around our shared faith in Jesus. So let's turn, if you haven't already, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we're going to begin in verses in verse 17. Follow along as I read verses 17 to 19. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. One of the unique features of the book of 1 Corinthians is that Paul uses this rhetorical device. Yes, but. And you see this throughout many parts of 1 Corinthians. Yes, yes, this is true, but this is also true. This is missing from this section. He says, in the following instructions, I do not commend you. I don't have anything nice to say about what you are doing. Paul has nothing good to say to the Corinthian church on this matter because when they come together, there are divisions among you. Look at that powerful juxtaposition here that the act of gathering together as the local church, what should be a picture of their unity in Christ, is actually a demonstration of how divided they actually are. Now, we'll get into more details of why this unity meal was a sign of their division. And we should note the end of verse 18 into 19 before we get there. So look at verse 18. I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Now, that phrase, I believe it in part, is most likely, and some of you may have a footnote in your Bible, reference to a certain report that some in the Corinthian church had sent to Paul. Not that he's like, "Ah, I kind of believe what you're saying, but more that he's responding to a specific report from some of the members. But we also get this difficult saying in verse 19. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Now, while there's debate among scholars about some of the details of this, I think it is best understood this way. That God, while he does not want conflict in the church, can use conflict and division for his purposes. And we need a category for this. Not that this is every time. But we need a category that God can use factions in a church to reveal who are actually genuine believers. We need a category in our lives that says church conflict can have a clarifying function in the life of the church. It's along the same veins of you often see who somebody really is when they're under stress. Right, This idea of you are like a sponge, and when you are squeezed, what's really inside of you comes out. And I think that's the idea here. But just because God can use this behavior 
doesn't mean he wants that behavior. Right? This is not Paul saying, look, you guys should fight more so I can figure out who's real among you. But I think it's important to have this category that sometimes God uses conflict for the truth to be revealed. And while we don't wish for conflict, God can even use that in his purposes. But after that note, Paul returns to what's going wrong in the Corinthian church around this communion practice. Let's look at verses 20 to 22. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat or drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. First of all, I want you to feel the weight and condemnation on the Corinthian church. When they are taking communion, even though they are eating the bread and drinking the cup, Paul says, when they do this, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. What a great reminder that even if we perform the Christian action correctly, it doesn't mean that God is pleased with it. It's not robotic in that way. If you eat the wafer and drink the little cup of juice, you haven't necessarily had communion. But what specifically were the Corinthians doing wrong? And this is where it's helpful to remember that often the early church would have communion as a part of a larger meal. But look at verse 21. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. Now, when we picture the church having a meal together, we picture a potluck. But back then, it was more like everybody brought their own brown paper bag lunch. Maybe instead of picturing the potluck that churches have today, you can, you can understand this by picturing the lunchroom at your elementary school. And everyone takes out their own lunch and starts to eat. <clears throat> So here's the problem. People were not sharing their food, and so, as Paul says, one goes hungry, another gets drunk. Picture one church member with a full plate of Thanksgiving food piled high, but instead of enjoying it with his fellow church member like we will be doing later, the person next to him has an empty plate. The reference to being drunk helps to create the picture of the great contrast between the haves and the have-nots. I love Paul's exasperated question to the Corinthians, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? What, what in the world are you doing? And Paul moves from exasperated question to full condemnation. Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing. This is more than just not sharing food. The way they are eating together is despising the church of God and humiliating those who have nothing. Again, think about how this meal 
that is meant to grow fellowship and to grow community and to demonstrate unity. The way that they eat together instead of growing the church family only highlights how poor some of the people in the congregation are. What was meant to demonstrate their unity causes humiliation. Paul, the exasperated parent, says, What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. So what's Paul going to do with these people? As we'll see in a second, the answer is not just a command to share. Now, sharing will definitely be encouraged. But what I think Paul will tell us in the next couple verses is that there's a deeper problem. It's not just that people aren't sharing. It's what their lack of sharing says about their hearts towards their fellow believers. They've forgotten that this meal of communion is a meal about the death and resurrection of Jesus for his people. And because they have forgotten that, they have demonstrated their lack of unity in the church. So let's move to the next section of the text here, that that while they're eating, they're actually preaching. Let's look at verses 23 to 26. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. These words hopefully are familiar to you that the church over the centuries has relied on them in its regular practice of communion. Often we'll refer to these as the words of institution, meaning when Jesus instituted the practice of communion. But I want to focus in particular at the end there, that in the practice of communion, verse 26, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We don't just share food so that we're not hungry after service because our service gets done around lunchtime. The practice of communion is communicating about the sacrificial death of Jesus. He gave up his life for us so that we could be saved. As we eat the bread and drink the juice, we remember and celebrate the body of Jesus which was broken. And we remember the new covenant in his blood. When we take communion together, we remember together that Jesus died a sacrificial death so we could be forgiven of our sins, reconciled to God, and have the hope of eternal life. And that it is only through faith in Jesus and his sacrificial death on the cross that we are brought into covenant relationship with the God of the universe and with each other. To use language from the previous chapter in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, 
for we all partake of the one bread. The reason that it is a big deal that the Corinthians have divisions in the meal is that this meal is a proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And our unity is not simply a unity around shared interests, but through our shared salvation in Jesus Christ. You know, sometimes in our world and even in our churches, we speak of unity as this very broad, ambiguous term. But there is a certain level of specificity here in the text. When we take communion together, we are celebrating that we are all saved by Jesus. We are celebrating that we are all brothers and sisters in Christ. And as often as we eat the bread and drink the cup, as often as we take time in our corporate service to take communion together, as often as we do that, we are testifying to the fact that through the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ, we are saved. We are adopted into God's family with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And because of the weightiness of that truth, the reality of that truth in the Lord's Supper, before Paul, at the end, gets back to some of the more pragmatic commands about how the church should eat together, Paul wants to warn them further about what happens when they take communion in an unworthy way. Let's look at that, the following verses beginning in verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. If the communion meal is a proclamation of the sacrificial death of Jesus, then if anyone eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. A couple things to note here. Number one, unworthy is a pretty broad category. Just like with most things in life, there are many ways to do something wrong. There are many ways to disrespect the practice of communion. The Corinthian church gives us one example to illustrate the problem. But even if we don't make their mistake, we shouldn't think that we're totally off the hook. Because the main point here is that God cares about how we participate in communion. And that next related point is that God takes this very seriously. That's the second thing. If we take communion in an unworthy way, we are guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. This is a hard saying. I appreciate how one of the commentators puts this. Paul's logic is this. The Lord's Supper proclaims the Lord's death. Those whose behavior at the Lord's Supper does not conform to what the death entails effectively shift sides. They leave the Lord's side and align themselves with the rulers of the present age who crucified the Lord. 
To illustrate the problem using the specific circumstances of the Corinthian church, when they took communion as a church, instead of it being a celebration of the sacrificial death of Jesus and the unity of believers that we have through our shared salvation, you've shifted to the same side as those who rejected Jesus. They deny the self-sacrifice of Jesus with their self-centered feasting. To be divisive in the communion meal is to deny our shared salvation in Jesus. So Paul counsels the Corinthians to think about what they're doing. In one sense, it's, it's simple. He says you're to examine yourself. Don't take communion haphazardly. Don't take communion without thinking. Don't, if, if the Corinthians had paused and examined themselves, maybe they would have seen that they were drunk and their fellow church members didn't have any food. In one sense, Paul's not asking a lot, but that little thing can do so much for your soul. Because if you drink without discerning, you eat and drink judgment on yourself. And in fact, Paul points out that the Corinthians have experienced physical expressions of God's judgment. Let's look at verses 30 to 32 there. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Paul points out that some of the Corinthians have experienced sickness and even death because of how they participated in the Lord's Supper celebration. Now, this does not mean that every time you're sick, you have violated the communion service. But it does mean that sometimes God uses sickness to bring us to repentance. Sickness and death in the church can even be used to warn other believers about sin. And if you've been in the church long enough, you've probably seen some of that. Again, this is not saying this happens every time, but again, you need a category for this. Paul ends this section in talking about, you guys have experienced God's discipline with a call again to self-judgment. Let's look at verses 30 and 31 again, or 31 and 32 again. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. If the Corinthian church had paused and actually evaluated what they were doing, they would not experience the full condemnation of those who have rejected Jesus. Better to experience the discipline of the Lord that brings us to repentance than to be condemned along with the world. In the practice of communion, it's better to pause and look at our own behavior and repent or to respond to God's discipline and repent so that 
we will not experience the same judgment as unbelievers. It is important that as we celebrate our unity in Christ, that we take the time during communion to self-examine, to discern our hearts, and repent as we might need. It's not an accident that a service proclaiming our unity is also a service that gives us an opportunity to repent, because repentance can be one of the greatest ways to grow our unity as the body of Christ. At this point, Paul then moves to the last part of the passage and gives us some practical advice, but also a final warning on this topic. Let's look at those last verses in verses 33 and 34. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. Again, it sounds simple, but Paul needed to say this. When you eat together, wait for everybody to eat. One of the undercurrents of this passage is taking the time to think and care about others. One of the commentators points out that part of the problem might have been that the poor people in the congregation and the slaves who were part of the congregation simply didn't have any control over their personal schedules like the more well-off people in the congregation. And that might be one of the practical reasons why people couldn't get there on time. When you're a slave, you don't get to say, hey boss, I'm going to go to church. But, but how much is, is kindness simply pausing and thinking about the circumstances of the lives of others? Again, this isn't rocket science here. But in addition to waiting for everyone, because it's meant to show unity. One of my favorite verses in the Bible, the answer for some was, if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. Don't put yourself in a position where it's easy to be self-centered. If your hunger causes you not to be able to share, have a snack before you come to church. If your hunger causes you to exclude your brothers and sisters in Christ, then eat a little more at breakfast before you come. We'll actually think about these things when we understand that our unity is our shared salvation in Jesus Christ. When we understand that Jesus is what unites us, then we're more likely to think about others and care for them and not just try to get what we want. So when we're focused on our shared salvation in Christ, we can eat so that when we come together, it will not be for judgment. And Paul has more to say, but we're not told what that is, but he'll save it for when he's in town, and he says, about the other things, I will give directions when I come. Let me conclude with this, and and we're going to go into the, the communion service 
But I want to center these concluding thoughts around our two meals today. We're going to partake of the communion meal and we're going to partake of a potluck meal. So when we eat together, when we share food together, we do that to grow and to show our fellowship with one another. Using the specifics of this passage, again, when we think church eating together, we think potluck, but that wasn't always the case. Going forward, every time you bring a dish to share, I want you to think about this passage. That we're not just bringing food for ourselves, but that we bring food to share because the eating's not the most important part. The most important part is that our eating is an expression of our unity with one another. And so to that end, please take advantage of potlucks. It's a unity meal. Spend time with old friends. Maybe meet a new friend. You know, if, if anything, here's a great conversation starter. White meat or dark meat? There you go. Or how much green bean casserole you're going to consume today. Friends, we, we don't just do this so that people aren't hangry after church. <laughs> There's a point. And the point is the unity and the fellowship of this local body of Christ. So use full advantage of that. That our eating together is not a sign of how divided we are, but of how united we are and how united we want to be. Secondly, to the meal of communion. When we eat communion, when we have a little piece of bread, a little cup of juice, we are proclaiming the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for us. Our unity is not built on flimsy things like shared interests and opinions. We are united in our shared faith in Jesus. It is our common salvation through Jesus that holds us together. We declare through our eating and drinking that Jesus died and rose again so that all who place their trust in him will be forgiven for their sins, reconciled to God, and have the hope of eternal life. Thanks for watching this video from Hillside Evangelical Free Church. Our hope is that these resources will help you grow as a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. We're located in Greenbank, Washington on Whidbey Island. And if you live in the area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to have you join us. You can find out more information at our website at hillside-efc.com.